Hello, everyone. Last week, we learned a lot about wound treatment from the World Wars, but they're not done teaching our surgeons quite yet. The next big thing, probably big enough that this is going to take several episodes, is addressing circulatory shock, which we'll just call shock from here on out, and how to treat it. Shock has been confusing to doctors basically since it was first identified, and even now shock is still being studied intensely. There can be a lot of causes of shock, for example from frightening experiences or pain, or actual damage to the body. Ultimately, in all kinds of shock, the clinical picture is more or less the same, where blood flow to the body is insufficient, causing weakness, fast heart rate, sweating, anxiety, and thirstiness. As you can imagine, we kind of need blood flowing to live, and so if untreated, shock can develop further into displaying confusion, heart attacks, unconsciousness, or even death. Ancient doctors had some understanding of shock, with early Greeks like Hippocrates and Galen noting a, quote, post-traumatic syndrome that afflicted the wounded. The term shock was first described in 1795 by James Latta in clinical descriptions. They observed that wounded soldiers with relatively mild wounds could still develop these symptoms and die. It took another century for the term to catch on, though, and even before then, shock was called a bunch of other things, like sudden vital depression, great nervous depression, or even my favorite, final sinking of vitality, all of which sound much more dramatic. For a long time, shock is pretty much just associated with wounds, and is only identified via symptoms. However, over time, we figured out the circulatory system was involved. We first gained the ability to measure blood pressure from Stephen Hales, a clergyman in Britain who had no formal training in medicine whatsoever, and measured the blood pressure of a horse in 1706 at Cambridge. Basically, he stuck a tube into a horse's arteries, and then veins, and saw that the blood level in the tube would rise several feet when it was in an artery, but only a few inches in veins, showing the difference in blood pressure. Over time, many scientists built upon this concept, using mercury to add resistance, adding a pen on top of the mercury, and eventually foregoing all that entirely. At the end of the 19th century, the modern sphygmomanometer was born, which I swear is the real name of that inflatable cuff that is used to take blood pressure today, and not just a bunch of syllables I stuck together. I'm real glad they figured it out, because having nurses stick you with a needle every time they might want a blood pressure reading would not be great. Once non-invasive blood pressure was figured out, physicians had a much better way of understanding if shock was happening, or imminent. Just check if the patient's blood pressure is low. That's an oversimplification of shock as we know it today, but was a common definition of shock in earlier times. Frankly, we don't have enough time to talk about all the different types, but just know that there are a bunch of them. George Washington Cryle was one of the first to propose that low blood pressure was the defining feature of shock, after conducting some 138 animal experiments in which he caused shock in animals with terrible injuries, which makes me really sad, even if the research was important. Such injuries included laceration, cuts, crushing, organ manipulation in surgery, burns, electric shocks, and gunshot wounds. Yikes. In the process of doing so, he tracked the animal's vital signs and also tested various remedies in search of a cure for shock, which at the time mostly consisted of stimulants like cocaine. Besides Kryle, literally hundreds of scientists researched shock over the years. Some of the articles I found could probably have been published as books, but I'd like to highlight a few folks in particular. Let's start with Alfred Blaylock and Vivian Thomas, his African-American research technician. 
Blaylock was a brilliant scientist initially working on investigating hemorrhagic shock at Vanderbilt. However, in 1927, he acquired tuberculosis and had to take a break from his work. In 1928, a year later, Blaylock was mostly recovered but was unable to conduct his own experiments, and so he hired Vivian Thomas in his lab, who was just 19 years old at the time, and again, black, in the early 1900s America, which is not a place that you want to be black. Despite many hurdles, including racism and being paid a janitor's salary, Thomas conducted a vast array of research and surgeries on Blaylock's behalf. Blaylock refused to even start procedures without Thomas present. They bled and injured anesthetized dogs, studied physiological effects of injury and resuscitation, and most importantly, made sure the dogs survived. Most prominently for us right now, they demonstrated that shock can be caused by blood loss, which leads logically to the idea of blood transfusion as treatment. Their discoveries would save thousands of lives during World War II. Through this research, Thomas became an expert surgical technician and was known for his care of lab animals, not to mention being a pioneer as a black person in the medical field. They answered a lot of questions and proposed some of the first classifications of shock. Even besides their work on shock, they pioneered a number of surgical procedures, techniques, and equipment, many of which are still used today. Thomas supervised the surgical labs at Johns Hopkins for over 35 years, and there are still memorials to both Blaylock and Thomas all over the campus here. While these folks helped further our understanding of shock, we still didn't have very good treatment, even for shock caused by wounds, which has been documented for centuries. That really starts in the World Wars, which is why I've waited until now in the season to talk about shock at all. The most common form of shock on the battlefield was, of course, from major wounds. Oftentimes with severe wounds, patients will lose a lot of blood, making it hard for the body to properly oxygenate, although, of course, other complications can arise too. It stands to reason that if a patient is losing a lot of blood, a straightforward fix to that would be to replenish said blood. Unfortunately, doing so without causing harm is actually quite complicated. Transfusing blood is a very old idea, with records and stories dating back centuries. Richard Lower transfused blood from one animal to another. Jamor of Leipzig introduced blood into the vein of a man, and three years later, Jean-Baptiste Denis transfused lamb's blood into a teenager. Unsurprisingly, these acts were frowned upon, both seen as unnatural and unholy, and it's not likely they yielded much in the way of health results anyway. James Blundell gets us started on modern blood transfusion. In 1818, he transfused a man who was dying of stomach cancer with human blood, in a last-ditch effort to help. There was some improvement in the patient's condition. Said patient reported, quote, I am better, much better, less fainty, end quote. He even took half a pint of ale the next day, because at the time, alcohol for ill patients was not frowned upon. Unfortunately, 56 hours later, he still died. But it seemed at least not from the blood transfusion itself. Over the years, Blundell experimented with dogs, and in a particularly notable case, bled a dog nearly to death, which seems to be a theme in this episode, and I'm not liking that. He then immediately transfused it with blood taken from another dog. Grisly, but luckily he was onto something, and the nearly dead dog recovered. Rumors began that Blundell, a midwifery specialist, was planning to infuse women dying of blood loss with animal blood. His assistant quickly put those rumors to rest, announcing that the rumors were ridiculous. They were just going to transfuse human blood into humans, not dog's blood which at the time probably did not sound much better. Later that year, he would publish a manuscript, 
with some new revelations regarding blood transfusion. To start, he pointed out that arterial blood is much easier to transfuse than venous, since the arterial blood pressure is higher, and it will naturally come out more easily. However, venous blood could be safely transfused by using syringes and a new pump which he invented. Most importantly, he figured out from his various studies, including the previously mentioned dog transfusions, that you don't have to replenish all the blood lost in order to keep a patient alive. This is really important, because that means it's possible to save a life via transfusion without killing the person you're taking the new blood from. Blundell's other innovation, though, that pump, was pretty complicated. His initial contraption required bleeding the donor into a funnel, which then fed the blood into the patient. Feel free to take a look at the picture in the show notes. In 1857, Higginson created a much simpler syringe, which many nurses are still familiar with today. The Higginson syringe is a rubber bulb, with a tube at either end and valves that prevented flow in the wrong directions. Many a nurse today has used it for pumping fluid into the rectum or vagina, but it was originally invented for blood transfusions. Even if you're not a nurse, you may have seen one of these before, so I've included a picture in the show notes. So now, we know blood transfusion is a thing, and it can potentially save lives without costing the life of the donor. There's still some serious problems with blood transfusions, though. Especially two big ones. First, blood normally clots, which is good if it's bleeding out of your body and you want that to stop, because the clotting will stop the bleeding. However, if a clot makes its way into the bloodstream, it will cause problems like blockages. There was, as of yet, no good way to prevent blood that was being transfused from clotting, but clinicians got to work. In 1869, John Braxton Hicks, a famed obstetrician, added sodium phosphate to the blood in an effort to prevent clotting. He transfused four patients, but all four died, so this technique was quickly abandoned. In 1901, Jules Bourdais and Octave Gengou, both famous bacteriologists in their day, came up with a janky but somewhat effective solution. Coat all the syringes and tubes with paraffin wax. Paraffin wax is a product of coal or oil that's very unreactive and makes a good lubricant. If the blood can't stick to the glass, since the wax is in the way, it won't clot as much. But also, applying wax to all your equipment gets wax everywhere, and frequently the wax would peel off and clog up whatever equipment was being used, since wax doesn't like to stick to glass either. Definitely not a great solution. Finally, right before World War I, Albert Huston, a Belgian scientist, was looking for a way to prevent clotting while experimenting on dogs. He knew that sodium citrate was used to stabilize certain other solutions, so he decided to try it on blood as well. It seemed to work, so next, he drew blood from a subject, added sodium citrate, and transfused the blood directly into a different patient's vein. The receiving patient recovered without problems, and plenty of replication showed that this method was safe and effective for preventing clots in blood that was being stored. Sodium citrate is still used today, and makes clotting a non-issue in blood transfusions. However, even with clotting fixed, patients given blood transfusions were sometimes still suffering terrible reactions, which were thought to be caused by toxins of some sort. Although doctors did not know it yet, the other big problem is blood types. You're probably vaguely familiar with blood types, like O, A, B, or AB. What those actually indicate are the different kind of proteins that are on the outside of some of your cells. If those proteins are foreign to your immune system, it will treat them as threats and attack them, which is why giving the wrong blood type can have bad consequences. Animal blood also has different proteins, meaning that transfusions between different species are also likely to have the similar disastrous effects. The reactions caused are known as incompatibility reactions, and they are not nice. 
Symptoms include fever, chills, difficulty breathing, pain just about anywhere, nausea, blood in the urine, liver dysfunction, and finally, a feeling of impending doom, which I think is an interesting symptom physiologically, but was confirmed by multiple sources I found. Despite this, animal blood would continue to be used for way, way too long. Blundell, the first guy we talked about who did the dog transfusion experiments, had already figured out that animal blood was not good to put into humans. Despite this, the next 50 years have many, many examples of animal-to-human blood transfusions. Some doctors, like Higginson, even noted that giving animal blood to patients caused severe reactions, but they attributed it to other causes, and so they kept using animal blood. We really didn't know what we were doing yet, clearly. Thankfully, some 50 years later, Leonard Lendois showed that blood from one species can break down the blood of another and cause death. Even after that, some doctors still advise lamb blood over human blood for transfusions. Old, terrible habits die hard, I guess. But over time, doctors finally came around, which is why we no longer receive animal blood. In 1901, Carl Landsteiner discovered agglutinins in the blood, which were those proteins I was talking about before that correspond to the four blood types we know and love. He showed that blood from some groups when mixed with others cause clumping and even cause the red blood cells to burst, which is definitely not what you want to happen in your blood. Samuel George Shattuck also separately discovered this in the same year, although had not extended his research to healthy subjects, like Landsteiner did. With more research, Landsteiner establishes initially three blood types, which we call A, B, and O, and eventually a fourth, AB, which was initially missed because it's pretty rare. Types A and B refer to the types of proteins present on their blood cells, which will cause reactions in patients without those proteins. O type has neither A nor B proteins, and so can be given to anyone else. With blood types figured out, a human-to-human blood transfusion becomes safer than ever before. From there, folks began trying to describe the four groups, but there was no universal standard. Our very familiar O, A, B, and A, B did not yet exist. Instead, you usually had several different standards, usually just numbered numerically 1 through 4, but with different standards using different numbers for different blood groups. I know that's confusing, because it is. So for example, one standard had what we now call type O, labeled as number 1. A different standard, called blood type O number 4. Until the League of Nations was formed after World War I, there was no international standard, and I can only imagine the mistakes and confusion caused whenever folks using different standards ran into each other. Regardless, humanity now knows of blood types, and can use that knowledge to prevent a whole lot of problems with human-to-human -human blood transfusion. Especially in the World Wars, blood transfusion would save thousands of lives, and Landsteiner would actually receive a Nobel Prize for his work later in life. Next week, we'll talk more about how blood transfusion was put to use in the Great Wars. As always, thanks for listening. If you've got feedback, please leave a review, or contact me through Facebook or email. I would love to hear from you. Finally, thanks to Jojo Tang for editing, Angie Lee for our cover art, and Muse Open for our intro and outro music.